You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Today we're going to talk about the antidote to envy. And for those of us who feel the swell of envy in our hearts, for those of us who are prone to see others as rivals, as, as, as rivals, for those of us who are prone to measuring our lives up to other people's lives, for those of us who are prone to living into the opinions of others, for those of us whose lives are built around the idea that we need to just be better, even if it means being better than somebody else, that it makes me feel better when I can put somebody else down and that I start feeling bitter when they feel or have it better. For those of us who struggle with these things like we talked about last week, um, I want to offer some, some, a word first to set the stage for the practices so that the practices can be entered into with some sense of genuine conviction for all of us. Real quick, one of the things we did say is that envy is a kind of sorrow that seeks to excel one's own status or worth over another. It's about a competitive, comparative status. We're always competing and we're always comparing because we have a worldview that says it's filled with winners and losers. Some win in life, some lose in life, and everybody else who ever, you, you have one of those two categories. You, you gotta play the game. We talked about how it's different than jealousy, that jealousy is about those who have and love those things too much and get all wired up when there's the possibility of those things being taken away. Envy is about not having. It's about loving too little. We talked about how it is subtle. And I asked a question, which I am sure you all remember from last week. (laughs) Uh, What would it be like to have a self whose worth was unconditional and identity non Comparative. It's kind of a big question. And so I asked, what would it be like? What would it be like not to live with envy? So I want to start with a story of Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, or if you want to turn here to the screen, Mark chapter 1, we'll try to answer that question with Jesus. Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee was baptized in the Jordan by John. As soon as he came out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending to him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Now, one quick caveat that we're not going to be able to chase down, uh, and if you're part of this church family, we've chased this down many times. You may not remember, and that's okay. We're not going to be able to chase it down this morning. Christian baptism, the baptism we receive, is different from the baptism Jesus receives here. It's a different timeline in God's redemptive history, right? Our baptism comes in a lens of uniting with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Well, Jesus obviously hadn't died at this point, so Jesus' baptism is different in that way, but there is something that both baptisms have in common, and it's the proclamation made over Jesus at this baptism. See, before Jesus ever preached a sermon, before he ever healed the hurting, before he ever went out to the margins of the Galilean society and received the outcast, before he ever did the first good deed, God the Father wanted him to get his identity settled. 
God the Father looked at him before he did anything at all and said, this is my beloved son, and I am pleased with him. I am pleased with him even though he hasn't done anything officially associated with his mission in the world. His life was loved and is known and his identity and his worth is secure and settled. Before Jesus does anything, the Father settles his identity. It's important. It's important for us, and this is why. Because Paul wrote that verse we read earlier during practicing the presence. Paul said to a church in Galatians 3.26, he said, for you are all sons. Now, real quick, I want you to know something about the Greek in this word here, sons. That's not excluding females. That word is actually, um, has has a, oh, I don't know how to explain this well. That word means more than just biological kids or or, or just male children. That word means heirs. And sons is appropriate for that culture and context. But when Paul uses it, he means heirs. He's doing this purposefully. And he says, for you all sons of God through faith, through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized, say it with me, into Christ, say it with me, have put on Christ like a garment. See, the thing is, is when we allowed our faith, when our faith led us to the waters of baptism, our lives by faith became united with and in Christ. And what the Father says over Christ, He says over us. Because we too now are in Christ. See, envy is above all things, envy is a distortion of how one sees self. Envy is a distortion of how one sees self so much that the capital vices tradition refers to envy as the evil eye. And so the antidote to envy, to this distorted view of myself, has to first begin with my eyes. It has to ask me how I see myself. We'll have to reframe our vision for the world, ourselves, and others. And for many of us, we'll have to learn new ways of seeing God, seeing the world, seeing others, seeing ourselves, and unlearn the old ways. Because envy is the evil eye. You know, it's been said that joy is robbed when one begins to compare themselves with others. Comparison is the thief of joy. Because we can't be satisfied, right? We're always comparing ourselves to other people. We're always trying to measure up to someone else or to the opinions of others. And when we do that, when we try to do that kind of thing, when we look at our coworkers, or our neighbors, or our friends who are also parents, or our friends who are married, or our friends who have really good kids and cute kids like Ronan, you know, like when we, when we look at others and we start measuring our lives up to theirs or we start listening too much to the opinion of others, we begin to compare ourselves with others and we lose our joy, our peace, and our satisfaction. It's just robbed because we are ultimately trying to live our life to impress. A couple of weeks ago, I was asked to be a speaker at a national campus ministry seminar and it was held in Auburn. Um, and all of these, these men and women 
200, I think, 250 or so people. Many of them I knew and have known for years, and many of them I've respected. I was a campus minister for eight years. I've done life with many of them from a distance, and I've learned from many of them. They have taught me about what it means to faithfully minister to people. And yet here I was two weeks ago, standing on a stage, supposed to offer a keynote that they all are supposed to get something from, right? And, and I'm sitting here looking at all these people thinking, I should be sitting there and you should be standing here. And I started to get nervous. And I get nervous every time I speak. Every Sunday I'm nervous why I can't eat in the mornings um, and why I drink 17 cups of coffee, which expedite my nervousness. Um, and, and I do that sort of thing. But I was, I was beginning to feel the nervousness of this. And so I leaned out as I was walking to the front. I leaned over to Allison and Ian, and I said, hey, pray, with, pray for me. Um, and I, I looked at Ian, I said, buddy, pray for me, okay? And he you know, nodded. And so I got up there, and I think God was faithful. Well, I know God was faithful, and I think, I think he was good and gracious to us in that moment. And I came off the stage, and I saw Ian, and I saw Allison, and we talked about what God was up to in that moment. And I asked Ian, I said, buddy, did you pray for me? And he said, yep. I said, what did you, uh, no, and he said, want to know what I prayed for? I was like, yeah. He said, I prayed what you pray over me every day, that my daddy would have nothing to prove, nothing to fear, nothing to lose. And I was like, all right, then. Because Ian and the Holy Spirit who lives inside of his little heart knew I needed to say that, needed to hear that, because I was overwhelmed by the people outside of me in that moment and didn't feel in any way, shape, form, or fashion adequate to offer a word. And in my inadequacy, in my lack, I needed to remember that I had nothing to prove. And my son knew that too, and so he prayed. See, because I've been trying to help him see in my own life, but also in the conversations we have, that we only feel like we have something to prove when we believe that there is something we lack. And when we believe there is something we lack inside of us or outside of us or in our abilities or in our status or in our situations, we will start living as though we have something to prove and when we do that, we become vulnerable to envy. But when your love for Jesus and faith in Him led you to the waters of baptism and you were baptized, as Paul says, into Christ, Paul's language, and you put on Christ like a garment, God looked at you in Christ and He saw you. He saw you, though. He didn't just see the blood of Jesus. He saw you, the one He made in His image. He saw you and He said, this is my beloved child. And I'm pleased with her. What the Father said over Jesus, He says over you because His love united your life with Christ. You're His beloved child. And when you're the child of the Creator of the universe, seriously, check it. When you and I are the children of the Creator of the universe, is there really anything we lack? Not according to the promises of God. See, you are more than your strengths. And you're more than your weaknesses. You are more than your accomplishments and you are more than your afflictions. 
You are more than your past and you're more than your present. You are more than your worst decision and you're more than your weakest moment. You are more than what you will ever know yourself to be unless you hear the words of the Father announced over you as you remember your baptism that there is nothing else you could ever measure up to because Christ did all the measuring that was ever required on yours and my behalf. And God looks at you and says, I am pleased. I love you. Your worth is secured and your identity is settled. All those opinion polls that you're listening to, they're closed. You are God's beloved. So here's the thing. Let's not give ourselves permission. Say give ourselves permission. Say give myself permission. Let's not entertain the thought which is to give myself permission to measure my own worth. Don't give yourself permission to measure your own worth. Don't even give yourself permission to determine your worth based on the sum total of your good works subtracted from your bad decisions. Don't do that. Something deeper must sustain us than that. It has to be more than a good sermon and it's got to be more than an uplifting song. When envy begins to surface, we're going to need more than sudden moments of inspiration or the sum total of good works. When our identity has been settled and our worth is unconditionally secured, then we can move forward and we can remember our baptism when God pronounced these words over us and united our lives with Christ, not just with any kind of love, but with a self-giving love. Anytime I think about this, I always think about Catherine Crow. Catherine was a member of this church for a long time, and she passed from this life into the next in 2013. Mine and Catherine's story is always fun to think of. When I was interviewing here, she was the one person on the search committee who did not like me. <laughs> And then I came to the Wednesday morning Bible study that our seniors had, which I completely agree is the best Bible study, right? Uh, see, there we go, Harvey. And I was going to tell them my story and answer any questions. And something happened in that moment that I didn't know until after. But Catherine started liking me. See, but I didn't know all this until my parents visited the church within my first couple of months here when they came to visit us in Williamsburg. And Catherine, you'd have to know her. She's about this tall. But she was dynamite. Dynamite comes in small packages. You know what I'm saying? Like, she was dynamite. And she pulled my parents outside, and she didn't say, hey, it's good to meet you. We, we love Fred and Allison and Ian and are grateful that they're... She didn't say any of that. This is what she said. She said to my parents, hi, my name is Catherine Crow. I was on the search committee that hired your son. And I need to tell you that when I first met him, I didn't like him at all. Now, I don't know what kind of hairs might have stood up on my mama's neck, right? But Tammy would go cray on you. And then Catherine immediately said, but as I've gotten to know him, I love him as a brother. Catherine and I, in our visits, we'd often talk about 
life and faith. And when we would get together, she would unfold just a little bit more of her story to me and let me into the living room of her life to peek in and see pieces of her past of what made this woman the woman she was. And she would tell me that there were days that the heartaches of her past hurt more than others. And then she would tell me that on those days, she wouldn't give herself permission to give in to the heartache. She would feel it and she would embrace it. But this is what she said she would do. She said she would go and find the closest mirror and she would look herself in the eye and she would say, Catherine Crow, you are a daughter of God. You are his beloved. You are not your past. You are not your feelings. You are his beloved. Catherine, I came up with a little name for this practice. We called it preaching the gospel to yourself. And I learned that from her. Because that's what we sometimes have to do. See, Catherine knew and chose to believe what the writer of Hebrews wrote to all of us and wants us to believe. It's probably one of the most popular verses in Hebrews. It's Hebrews 13.8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday. What else? Today and and see, what, what the writer of Hebrews is trying to say is that God's purposes and promises never change. Like, no one can alter the course of God's purposes and promises. It's like what James said in his letter in chapter 1, verse 17, that God's goodness and grace isn't like, quote, shifting shadows here one moment and there the next moment. We're not chasing God's shadow. We're not chasing his love. We're not chasing his presence. He hasn't changed. He can't change. He will not change. God isn't fickle. His love isn't fragile or frail. His love is faithful. And because his love is faithful, his love will never fail us. He can't change. We're the ones who change. Life changes. There will be no doubt in your mind and my mind that some of us are already in it and some of us will eventually enter into it. These circumstances and seasons of life where all that I just said will be hard to believe where the circumstances and experiences we're in are going to try and tell us something different. They're going to try and tell us that Jesus has changed, that God has changed, that he's like a shifting shadow. It's here one minute, but because of what you did, it's there now, and you got to go run and find it there. Like Our circumstances are going to tell us that, and sometimes these things are going to come to us because they're choices we make, and sometimes these circumstances are going to come into our lives because the world is still living under the reign of sin and death, despite the fact that the reign of God has broken in through the cross, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. And despite the fact that we live in the reign of God, we're still going to feel the effects of the reign of sin and death. And it's going to be hard to remember that Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever because it's like the great philosopher Heraclitus said. In 500 BC, this unconventional and quite brilliant thinker, he said the only constant is change. Nothing endures but change. 
He was the guy who coined the phrase, no man ever steps in the same river twice, for it's not the same river and he's not the same man. And he's right, right? Like every moment that comes by is a new moment and something has changed like this moment. See, there it went. Like, like we can't get it back. It's, it's past. Like this one. See, that, that's gone. Right? Like every moment. Oh, there it goes. Right? Like there, every moment. Go, like you're right. Like we're one second older. Like we may not feel the difference. We may not feel it in some meaningful way, but our bodies do. We're, we're one second, one minute, one day, one week, one year older. Everything changes. Eventually, kids grow up and go to college and hopefully pay for it. All right. And so, because <laughs> like, move on, friend, move on. I mean, say that everything changes. The only thing constant really is change. And we wake up every morning to a world that is always changing. The waters of life, they rush onward, which is what he means when he says no man steps into the same river twice. The water's flowing. It's not going to come back to you. It's past. And we don't get it back. Which is why things need to be redeemed and restored. There are days when we feel stuck even. Or maybe we feel like we aren't changing, but everything around us is changing. We're standing in place while the waters of life move all around us and we feel the ground beneath our feet shifting. And we don't feel like anything is changing, but the fact is everything is changing. I remember very vividly a very pivotal moment where I realized I was changing. When Ian was three, and we lived in Seasons Trace Division, subdivision, uh, he loved his pedal, like he loved his scooter. And he was a little beast with that scooter. I mean, he was brave with that scooter. He would go much faster than I felt comfortable with, with that scooter. And one day he wanted to go down the hill. The subdivision had a downhill sort of turn into kind of a cul-de-sac. And, you know, I am the helicopter parent of all helicopter parents. And so I thought to myself, well, I'm going to, I mean, I, I can't keep up with him, so my neighbor has a scooter. I'm going to borrow that. Yeah, you know where this is going. Now, you don't know this about me, but I used to skateboard back in the day. Um, and I wasn't half back. I could do some tricks. Right? I could do some ollies, some spins. I could do some stuff. I got on that skateboard, and all of a sudden, my childhood came back to me, or that, that scooter, and I was looking, you know, it's just a scooter, right? And, and you stand on it kind of like a skateboard if you, if you want to coast, right? And, and so Ian's doing boom, 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 and he's coasting, and I'm like, all right, you know? And so I start going fast, too. But the hill's a little, little steeper than I, than I thought, and, and I'm going down, and he's going down, and then he's kind of looking at me, and he's smiling and laughing, and I'm kind of smiling and laughing, and I all of a sudden think, I bet I can ollie you. I bet I can ollie this thing. I bet I can catch some air. And I did. Over the handlebars. Because I did not realize that the, my neighbor's scooter had a brake on the back wheel, and when I put pressure on the back, the scooter stopped. But this thing called gravity did not. And I flipped over. I literally... Like, there's no, like, I flipped, like Ninja Warrior flip. I didn't have a helmet. Thanks be to God, I didn't bring my head. But I admit to you that Ian saw it, and he immediately stopped and kind of yelled, Daddy. And I ain't gonna lie, I wanted to lay there and cry for a minute. 
Like I, I was all, but then I was like, you know, I can do better than that. You know, I don't mind. My, we cried. We cried all the time. I watched Greatest Showman last night and cried. Like we cry. It's no big deal in our house. But at that moment, I just didn't. I didn't need to cry. And I, I had to get up, and I got up ever so slowly, and I made my way back. Like, no, buddy, I'm good, man. I'm good. See, I, I, you know, in my mind, I could do that, right? But my body, <laughs> my body said, "Ain't happening." And I realized at that moment, it was very real to me. I realized that uh, I'm getting older. I'm changing. My body's going through changes. I can't jump as high as I used to. I think I can. I can't do tricks on scooters like I could on skateboards. See, 500 years after Heraclitus would say this, God broke in to his world and said to the world, hey, you know that thing that Heraclitus said that the only constant has changed? He's not quite right. I never change. My love for you will never change. You will change. Everything will change. Everything but me. It's like what the Lord said to his disciple John when John was paralyzed by fear because God was giving him a revelation that everything was going to change. Rome, Israel, and the world as John knows it is going to change. The fate of human, humanity is going to change. This is what the Lord said. He said, yeah, do not be afraid, Revelation 1.8. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord God. I am the one who is, who always was, and who is still to come, the almighty one. I will not change. And my love for you will not change. Your worth has been secured and your identity has been settled. And that won't change. And that's the gospel we proclaim. Like that's the faith we confess. That despite the rushing waters of change and steady movement of time, our worth and identity as God's beloved children never changes. You are not defined by the movement of time you are a part of. You Say it again. You are not defined by the movement of time you're a part of. You can't be. Because the God who invented this thing called time has called you his beloved child and said he's pleased with you. You are not defined by the movement of time you're a part of. You are defined by your baptismal identity. You are defined by the proclamation that you are God's beloved child in Christ Jesus the Lord. And so we come to the beginning. To our first question before we ever had this discussion. What would it be like to have a self whose worth was unconditional and identity non-comparative? Here's what I think it would be like. It's a self that regularly meditates on its unconditional worth and settled identity, secured by God's faithful love. It's a self free to celebrate and affirm others without feeling threatened. It's a self capable of loving without anxiety that its own contributions must measure up to others. It's a self with nothing to prove because there's nothing it lacks. It's a self ready to lose in the eyes of others because it's already won in Christ. It's a self that becomes a non-anxious presence in an anxious world. 
That is who we are and are becoming because God has said it so. Now what we do is learn to live in it. And so we end this conversation with some practices. I want to offer you some practices. Some of these practices I have personally practiced and it helps me in my life when I feel as though my life and the, my vocation puts me on display where I'm always prone to the judgment or opinion of others. These are practices that I've taken on and some of these practices are practices that I've learned from others whose lives are faithful, who have a self like I've defined just now. Here's a practice. Choose shared experiences you like outside of a competitive environment. See, remember, the thing about envy is that it sees others as rivals, coworkers, brothers, sisters, siblings, mothers, fathers, spouses maybe, friends, neighbors. So here's a very simple practice. This isn't a big aha moment. This is just a simple practice. Choose a practice. Choose a shared experience you like outside of a competitive environment. Purposefully choose activities that stay away from competitive forces and see someone else as a threat. If you are just hyper-competitive and that has cultivated a sense of envy in you, then choose some practices and shared experiences with those same people you'd watch the football game with or whatever it is into a different kind of practice, like maybe concerts or art exhibits or hikes or movies or something where you're not seeing one another as competitive, where they're not the cheering for the other team and you're cheering for this team or whatever the case may be. That's just a very simple practice. And the second one I want to offer is also equally as simple, but a little different. Practice doing shared experiences you don't like outside of a competitive environment. Like just like the one above it, do things that require that you submit to the taste and the preferences of your friend. That person you're always competing with silently in your mind, or that lifestyle that you seek to measure up to, choose a practice that requires that you submit to their taste and preferences. That person that you have nothing in common with, but yet for some reason you envy, do that. Or here's one. Practice doing, or practice staying away from or fasting from competitive ventures for a season. I think some of us need this, man. Like some of us, the envy is so deeply rooted that it would really do us well to just fast from competitive ventures. Like as hard as it's going to be, I'm not going to watch a sport this season or I'm not going to do this activity for this season, especially if your friends or coworkers are involved. Like if you're at work, I'm not going to participate in the fantasy football league because I feel like I'm always competing with my coworker for the new thing or for the sales goals or for whatever it is. So I'm going to choose to abstain from that so I don't get more permission to see them as a rival. Or here's one, practice doing hidden acts of love for others. See, envy is closely related to vainglory, meaning that it seeks to have one's self-worst measured in light of its accomplishments. So choose instead to do hidden acts of love, things that no one will ever know, not even your spouse. And that feeling you feel that wants you to be known for doing that, you know, that backdoor entrance you take so that your spouse will think how great you are, you don't give permission to it. So that your friend will think how great you are, you don't give permission to it. You never speak of it. God sees it, you see it, a person received it, that's enough. Or here's one. Practice gratitude or singing one another's praises. For those of us who long to have our praises sung, for those of us who long to be told, thank you for who you are, submit that to the cross and be the person 
who makes sure that you do that, everybody else. Whether you get it or not. That's a practice that will push back on the envy. This is why I believe in singing one of those praises. Or, learn from Sister Catherine. Contemplate God's love. Meditate on God's love by preaching the gospel to yourself. Make it a point that when you wake up in the morning, no matter how successful or unsuccessful you think you are, make it a point that when you wake up in the morning that you look yourself in the eyes when you look yourself in the mirror. And you say to yourself, I am God's beloved child. I am loved just as I am, not as I should be. And there is nothing that will change his love for me. And you may think this is weird. You may think this is some sort of Stuart. What was that? Stuart, I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. And doggone it, people like me. I just, they, this is why I fell off the scooter because I'm old enough to remember that. This may sound like pop psychology. This is exactly the kind of stuff the Apostle Paul called the people of God to. Preach the gospel to yourself. You can do that a lot of different ways. You can stare in the mirror and tell yourself something, or you can memorize Scripture and recite it every morning or every night when you go to bed. Scripture that reminds you of who you are and whose you are. Psalm 139, or Colossians 1, 15-21, or Philippians 2, 5-12. Something in the Scriptures that will remind you of who Christ is and because of that, who you are as God's beloved child. Maybe find a mantra for your life. Well, like I pray over my son and God teach him to know that he has nothing to prove, nothing to fear and nothing to lose. And the more you pray it and the more you use it as a mantra, the more it will come rushing into your heart the moment you feel you have something to prove. And if for some reason you think you lack something and you have something to prove, but you're not the one noticing it about yourself, the Holy Spirit in the heart of people you love will tell them and they will pray that for you and the Spirit will do work. Just some simple practices, not rocket science here. But envy is a subtle, slow death by a thousand cuts. Do not give it permission. You are loved just as you are. And in your baptismal identity, God said, you are my beloved child. Now, last thing. If you've never been baptized into Christ, you can change that today. You can change that now. You can change that any time. You have to have a baptism to remember it. There's nothing that'll keep you from the waters of baptism. Nothing but you. No man, no woman, no child can tell you you can or cannot. Be led by faith and love of Jesus to submit your life to the promises of God proclaimed over that text where even though we see someone baptized and we see them dry and then wet and then wet again, with the eyes of faith, we see them as they are and then they come up and they're clothed with Christ for who they really are. You can change that. And if you've been contemplating it and you don't know if you're ready and that sort of thing, look, that's a decision you need to prayerfully make. Jesus said things like count the cost. Jesus talked about, look, man, you know, be mindful. Don't, don't put your hand on a plow and just turn it back. But, but there's also something else that Jesus and even the apostles said. The question you've got to ask is, do I love Jesus and want Him to be Lord and King of my life? Do I want to live as though He reigns and rules in this world and in over me? And the answer to that is yes. In the words of Philip, when he said to the eunuch, then what are you waiting for? 
There's water. Arise and be baptized. We're going to come to the table, and in remembering our baptism, remember the reason why we even had one in the first place. We're going to take hold of the bread that is the body of Christ, the cup that is the blood of Christ, and we're going to take it, we're going to receive it into our life and remember that this is the Christ who God was, in whom God was pleased, and we are His children, and He is pleased. He loves us. And now at this table, we are invited to go participate in that love. You've received it, y'all. Now we have to participate in it. The love of God will not leave us the same. Stay at the table, sit at the table, receive Christ, and leave beloved.